Welcome to Now Appalachian, hosted by author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. This show profiles the authors and publishers that have connections to the Appalachian region and how those connections influence and impact their works. And now, Appalachian. And hello, friends. We welcome you once again to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network as we continue to profile the outstanding authors and publishers that call Appalachia home or by which the area and region of Appalachia is a significant impact and a significant subject of their work. So I'm Elliot Parker. It's great to have you with us today as we welcome in uh, Annette Clapsaddle to talk to us about her new book, it's called Even As We Breathe, a novel, and it is really a book that you need to add to your to-be-read pile because it is something that will sweep you off your feet, take you back to another period in time, and really, really, really touch your heart with an emotional, wonderful, gripping story. And Annette joins us today. Uh, she is the first ever enrolled member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, and she's the first one of those to publish a novel when this book came out. Uh, in September of 2020. She holds degrees from Yale University as well as the College of William and Mary and she served as the executive director of the Cherokee Preservation Foundation and is now an English teacher at Swain County High School where she was born and raised in Western North Carolina. And Annette, we are so glad uh, to have you here on Now Appalachia to talk to us about your outstanding novel. So welcome to the program. Uh, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I wanted to ask you first about setting because uh, your book takes place in kind of two different locations. We get uh, Asheville, North Carolina, and we also uh, have another setting uh, that takes place uh, in, uh, in, in the Cherokee area, the Cherokee uh, tribal lands. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. And um, I know the values and kind of the, the cultural beliefs of both of those places are very different. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, those two locations and, and how those two backdrops and settings are so different for what happens in your story. Sure. Um, you know, this is an, a novel that's really driven by the setting and that juxtaposition of places. So Cherokee, North Carolina, the Kuala Boundary, um, which, which people commonly refer to as the Cherokee Indian Reservation, but it's technically the Kuala Boundary, um, is very different uh, in terms of economics than Asheville, North Carolina, specifically in 1942 when uh, the story is set. So in 1942, Cherokee looked similar in some ways to other reservations um, across the United States, but also very much like rural Appalachia in general. So, you, you know, it's a small town kind of feel. Um, certainly not a booming economy um, in Cherokee during that time. And then Asheville, on the other hand, um, is a resort town um, in 1942 or prior to 1942 um, with the Grove Park Inn being um, a resort that was um, visited by the upper crust of American society. You know, the Biltmore House is just down the road from the Grove Park Inn. Uh, today, even the Grove Park Inn is a place that welcomes visitors like the Obamas um, on their vacation. So there's a, there's a big gap um, in terms of economics between the places. And then, of course, culturally, he is home um, to the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. This is our ancestral homeland. Um, so 
Um, most people are familiar with the Trail of Tears and the removal of Cherokees and other tribes west to Oklahoma. The Eastern Band is the result of those Cherokees who stayed in Western North Carolina, and there's lots of different ways how they, uh, why and how they stayed um, in Western North Carolina. But this is this has always been our home, and so we're also very culturally rooted here. Um, Sacred sites um, are all across our, our land here in Western North Carolina. But what's kind of interesting is that um, there were Cherokees in Asheville before Asheville really became Asheville. So uh, there is some crossover there. Very good. And your book puts one of your main characters, who's a terrific character, on this quest where he has to leave kind of the Cherokee area that uh, he is from or that his family is from and kind of moved to Asheville. And we meet uh, a character named uh, County Sequoia. And one of the things we learned about him early on in the book, he was born with a twisted foot. And so he's got a little bit of a disability there, but um, he is, is going, kind of going on a journey because he leaves um, uh, his, his homeland or his ancestral homeland and goes to Asheville to work at a place called the Grove Park Inn. And while he's there, one of the things that he learns, which I think is so interesting, is that there is a group of foreign diplomats that he learns about while he's working the grounds there at the Grove Park Inn. And they're in sort of a, a, a nice detention, if that would be a, a great, a good, or a nice imprisonment. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what County discovers uh, as he's kind of observes what these diplomats are going through and who puts them there, who puts them in this sort of... Uh, uh, easy detention, so to speak. Right. So this is one of the factual parts of the novel that um, during the summer of 1942, the Grove Park housed access diplomats um, and foreign nationals as prisoners of war uh, during World War II. And so I think someone described it to me the other day as so it's like when Martha Stewart went to prison. <laughs> Maybe it's similar to that. Um, but he goes to work there as a member of the grounds crew and um, he is told to refer to the POWs as guests. And so there is still um, a, a social order, social class order um, going on at the Grove Park. There's military, um, of course, on site. And then there are these prisoners of war who are also diplomats. And then there are those who come just to work at the end. And so it, it does create um, still a hierarchy, um, which is interesting to think about in, in terms of being in the middle of wartime and who is considered um, acceptable to belong and, and um, who is a citizen at that time. So um, County um, discovers how that all operates um, within the inn, and um, try not to give away too much. Um, but the, the novel does revolve around him discovering a bone uh, while he's there, and that causes all sorts of trouble. One of the things I like about, about him as a character is that you know, he's got sort of lingering in the background. We learn about his family life and we learn that one of the reasons he sort of made that pilgrimage uh, to Asheville to work at the inn is that he was being raised by his grandmother and she was uh, in financial hardship and couldn't really afford to feed him. Uh, he, he has this uncle 
uh, who's quite an interesting character that we um, that we meet, and we'll talk more about him, Bud, uh, as we move through our interview today. And he's kind of the only connection that uh, County has to his father, who died uh, during World War One. And so, you know, as he's learning the this this new culture on uh, and this new sort of system and, and hierarchy, as you mentioned at the end, he's also got sort of these these family skeletons that are hanging around him, and that he's trying to. To move on from, and I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, putting that together. If, if sort of those family demons or skeletons that County has to deal with is, is that something that uh, you set out to to incorporate throughout the book, or is that something that sort of came back into the story as you kept moving County's story more into the present time and present uh, circumstances? I appreciate that question um, because I, I think that. Um, it's assumed that it was always part of the narrative and it actually developed uh, when I was well into the the first draft and I realized I actually started thinking a lot about Bud in particular and what motivated Bud to behave the way he does toward County Um, and really the you know the other end of that is what is driving County to to seek other um, other ways of life and and to be as curious as he is uh, to leave home. So that's something that um, that complexity of his own home life is something that developed uh, a little bit later in the process when I was writing. It kind of surprised me (laughs) um, at one point, actually. Very good. And in addition to uh, sort of a bud being kind of a interesting character that sort of haunts, uh, uh, county a little bit from his uh, previous life he does meet another character named essie uh who is cherokee like him uh, as he gets uh gets more comfortable with what's going on at the inn and in Asheville. but she comes from a different background than him a uh, pretty significant different background than county does can you tell us a little bit about El- essie and the attraction that these two characters have with one another Right. Yeah, Cherokee is a small community, so um, it's mentioned that they, they kind of knew of each other growing up. They're similar in age, but she comes from a family that's a little bit uh, more well-off, well-to-do. Um, her father has a job that takes care of their necessities, and so she's been thinking about a future outside of Cherokee for a long time, um, about possibly... Um, going places like New York um, after college. And so that, w- that has always been a given for her. Um, for County, it's, it's a little more undecided what his future holds, and he doesn't feel like he has the same opportunities. But they do share this similar connection to place and to culture, so that when they're removed from that and in a brand new place to both of them, they... Um, can identify with each other more probably away from home than they could at home. And they build their own culture together in this um, secret room that they've discovered um, that it seems like no one else at the end really knows about. And they, they kind of take over this room and develop their own culture of two there. Very good. And one of the things I really like about County too is you really embed him with a little bit of, of innocence. Um, not really naivete, but, but just innocence. And I don't want to give too much away, but we learn later on as we get into the novel and through the novel that there are people at the end, and you kind of touched on this a moment ago, um, who don't have 
uh, good intentions at heart and that they are up to some, some pretty, uh, pretty bad things and, and keeping secrets and trying to do things to other people. And yet uh, there's still a little bit of, of innocence. He doesn't really suspect or um, think that people at the end with whom he's gotten to spend time with and get to know could have these, uh, these evil intentions. And I was wondering if, if, if that is something that, uh, that, that, that innocence, how you came about deciding that that was going to be one of those character traits that County had, because it's one of those character traits that really makes him an endearing character because, because he is so honest and he sees the good uh, in so many circumstances and so many people. Yeah. So I, I teach high school and um, so, you know, I have classroom full of counties <laughs> some days and I think about how at that age, a lot of the young men that I know are, they want to be bolder. They want to be courageous. They, they want to kind of make their own path. Um, and they, they also are not um, blind to how difficult life can be. County knew, you know, from growing up that, that life was hard, that um, he, you know, grew up without, a, you know, a lot of money and, and his uncle Bud is hard on him. Um, but he also grew up believing that, um, that that people were not his problem as much as systems were his problem. So anyone that he encountered who to his face was was kind was always kind. Um, and so that that became a little bit different when he tried to um, figure out the unspoken rules of working outside of his community and um, and realize that people are motivated by some other things. Um, or at least, you know, some things on a, on a different level than he was used to being exposed to. So, you know, he, County is very much, um, one of those students that I've taught in the past, you know, he's a composite of, of those, those guys who aren't quite sure where they're going. They're smart. They've been through some things, but, um, they're still trying to figure out people. And I think we're all still trying to figure out people to some extent. Yeah, very well said. We're speaking with Annette Clapsaddle here on Now Appalachia. Her new book is called Even As We Breathe. And Annette, we'll get back to uh, the book in just a second. But I wanted to ask you about something we mentioned uh, when we were introducing you a few minutes ago, and that is the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. You're a member of that and the first member of that group uh, to publish a novel. So who is that group and, and, and what are they about and what are they involved in and how are you involved as a member of that group? So the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians um, is a tribe we, um, located in uh, far western North Carolina and um, we have, I always get numbers wrong, but we got, have about 14,000 members now, not all of which live on the Kuala boundary. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we our tribe is a um, result of uh, the Trail of Tears, um, and we are those tribal members who either hid out um, or negotiated or returned uh, during the Indian removal. And so the Cherokee people were, uh, we, our ancestral land is in uh, the southeast, 
Um, but because of Indian removal, it was fragmented into three federally recognized Indian tribes. So two of which are in Oklahoma now, the Cherokee Nation and the Anayagadua Band. And we are the, um, the only band um, still residing on our ancestral lands. And so we function um, as a sovereign nation within the United States. We have our own form of government. Um, with elected officials and whatnot, a school system, a hospital system, um, pretty much like any municipality would function, but we deal with the federal government um, on a nation-to-nation -nation basis. And currently, um, our main source of revenue is gaming, and in that, we've been able to expand our sovereignty and, and really are very self-sufficient uh, in a lot of ways in terms of economics now. No, very good. And you've gone to Yale, you've gone to uh, the College of William and Mary and uh, gotten your degrees and your education there. What made you want to settle back down into Western North Carolina where you were from? What made you want to come back and, and not only live there, but also, as you mentioned, teach there at Swain County High School? What made you want to come back to that area? So when I'm asked this question, I always say that so many people want to retire to Western North Carolina. I don't understand why I wouldn't just start there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I did go away for school and I'm glad that I did. And I enjoyed traveling and, um, and seeing other places, but you know, my home is beautiful. It is absolutely gorgeous. Um, the culture is rich. I obviously have family here. Uh, as well, and it's where I want you know my, to raise my family. Um, I just haven't been convinced that I need to be anywhere else. And <laughs> in terms of a writer, uh, there are so many more stories to tell about this place that it's important to be. It's important to me to be in this place as I write. Um, and in terms of a teacher, I think the you know sometimes when people think about um, rural public education, they assume that our students aren't as bright as those going to private schools in, in big cities. And that's absolutely not true. Um, I've been in other schools um, of privilege and our stu students are just as bright. So um, when I uh, entered the teacher prep program at Yale, um, I remember I was actually, I was touring the school and we met the director and my mom <laughs> asked the director, why would someone go to Yale and then become a teacher? And the director said, that is the best thing you can do with a Yale education is to pass it on. So I've kind of kept that in my brain too, that I've been really, really fortunate to have access um, to the education that I've had. And so I enjoy sharing that with, with people um, who, who deserve to um, have access to that. And this being your debut novel, I wanted to ask you about challenges that you had putting this story together. What were some of the challenges that you had in uh, weaving this tale together? And uh, we'll talk about foreshadowing and flashbacks in a minute, but some of the challenges that you had in, in connecting this great story about Cowley together. Um, I think primarily it was a really tight timeline of events. Um, my character needed to be a certain age and I needed his, um, 
father to be somehow involved in at least the tail end of World War One, and and County being uh, in the midst of World War Two. Uh, and that, and I, my strong suit is not numbers. So I, I check numbers and dates 5 million times to make sure that, that everything was plausible. Um, and, and really just making sure all of, I knew the story, um, but I wanted the, that historical timeline to, to work out because the setting of that was really important to amplify some of the themes of the book. So that, that was probably one of the biggest challenges. And just, um, I mean, you mentioned we talk about foreshadowing and flashback, but just really trying to decide how much information to give when. And I played with that. And, I, you know, I moved it around a little bit um, as I wrote. And that clap saddles our guest here today on Now Appalachia. We're talking to her about her new novel, Even As We Breathe, published by University of Kentucky Press. And Annette, um, get back to that question of we were just teasing about a minute ago about uh, foreshadowing and flashback that there is a lot of foreshadowing and flashback here and, and you fill in the gaps so well about County and his, his life and his family's life and then give us some foreshadowing of what maybe uh, is to come. And I, I wanted to ask you about structuring that more, more specifically. How did you know or how did you realize this is a point where I need to, to flashback and fill in some information or this is an okay chapter or an okay part of a chapter where I need to foreshadow uh, what's going to happen in the future. How did you balance that as a writer? When did you know in writing the uh, draft that that was going to be uh, appropriate uh, conventions to use? One of the um, really beneficial parts of the process for this novel was that in a workshop and one of the assignments was to write the synopsis. Now I had not written the book <laughs> but to write the synopsis and which of course is the hardest thing on earth to do. And because I had that, it allowed me to have that broad scope of where I wanted to go. One of the most challenging things for me when I'm writing a, a project, this a manuscript this large is to hold all the pieces at once and not to forget about um, that I'll need to foreshadow something. So um, I at least had that in place and I knew I wanted to drop some hints um, along the way, but some of it was simply just going back once, um, you know, for example, the way I thought about Bud's character changed kind of as I was writing. So I then had to go back and drop some other information um, along the way. So some of it was a little bit of back and forth. And then, you know, the prologue um, literally came first. It was the first thing I wrote before I knew I had a novel. And um, in a lot of ways serves as a synopsis for the book. Um, and so I think that um, I use that a lot. I always have that prologue in mind. Um, I was actually at a, doing a book club event and just read the prologue again for them. And they, they, they said, wow, you know, you read the prologue and then you read the novel, but what you really should do is go back and read the prologue again. And, and that kind of does sum it up. I want, I want it to, to be this full circle experience, but with a greater understanding at the end. So um, I, I don't know if that completely answers the question. It was a lot of back and forth. Um, 
yeah, it, it, I was probably all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that that is one of the hardest things for writers to do is to, to use flashback and foreshadowing because uh, it can be one of those things that is so helpful for a reader, but also can be, I know, maddening as a writer to try to get it balanced correctly and to try to realize how much is too much or how much is not enough. And, and I think you did a great job with handling both of those uh, you. in your book, even as we breathe. And I wanted to read one quote that came up at the end, because I think it, it sums up everything that we've been talking about with uh, County and his experiences and the other characters he, he meets. And I, I think this ties into one of the themes that I thought was really great in your book about how by the end, as we see County grow up and age and his life goes on from him, for him, um, he does, you know, we talked about his innocence earlier. He does still in some ways, he has enough confidence later in life as he gets older to trust other people. But I love that he seems to have an ability to forgive other people as well, forgive those who have, have hurt him in some way. And he doesn't hold a grudge, but, um, and I, I looked this up because uh, I was not familiar with this, but you have a quote uh, at, the end of the, at the end of the book from when County later in his life goes to see a film, and it's Charlie Chaplin's film called The Great Dictator. And I had not okay. seen this, so I actually looked this up and watched a little bit of it. And this was actually the first Charlie Chaplin film when he actually spoke. You could actually hear his words. And it's a much older Charlie Chaplin, I think, than what a lot of us are used to when we see the old black and white uh, non-audio films. But um, I, I love that County is watching this film and, and he says this, and I just wanted to ask you to kind of give us the, the significance of this quote and how this kind of ties into maybe County's life uh, in general, but especially later in his life. Uh, in that final speech, Chaplin says, and County notes this, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but uh, in all men. And I thought about how utterly different everyone in the audience seemed how each one of us was motivated by so many different things. And yet here we all were sitting together, being reminded of our communiality by a comedian. Yeah. You're, you're the first person who has asked me about that quote. Um, so that was, that was one of those pieces of writing magic that happens. I was, you know, I knew he was going to go watch this movie. And so I researched, what could he have watched then? And then everything just seemed to fit so perfectly. Um, I love that Chaplin finally gets his voice, which I hope mirrors, you know, County's ability to get his voice and tell his story. Um, <clears throat> and then also, uh, you know, the, the novel is called Even As We Breathe because the message being that um, we, we place so much emphasis and importance on uh, things of non-importance, you know, like what color our skin is, who our family was, um, all of those things that we use to determine citizenship and, and class even and belonging. Um, but really what is important is um, what our spirit is. And so um, to think of, of county who you know, had trouble getting into that movie in the first place, um, being able to sit amongst all these people and they're all having the same experience, the exact same experience and filtering it different ways based on um, their own kind of belief systems about how the, the world um, operates. And then the, the last piece about comedy, you know, one of, 
a very important Cherokee value is a sense of humor. And um, I think that that's, that's how humans in general deal with tragedy a lot of times. Um, and it's one of those things that can uh, unite us, you know, um, throughout our humanity. And so I, I just really loved that quote um, from that movie. And I thought that it fits so well. And it just, you know, seemed serendipitous that it, you know, it all fit um, with the timeline of the book and everything. Absolutely. All right, Annette, so you, this is your debut novel. You have one novel under your belt now. So what are you working on next? Ah, uh, <laughs> the hard question. Uh, <laughs> I am, well, I will say on the one hand, I have a manuscript that I actually wrote before this um, that has never been published, but um, I'm just going to put that <laughs> to the side for now. Um, but what I'm working on right now is um, what I can say about it is that it is set in contemporary period in Cherokee and has a female protagonist. And I want to take some of the more, um, well, I should rephrase it. I want to take some of um, our Cherokee traditional stories and uh, like origin stories and take the values embedded in them and kind of their themes and translate them to a modern narrative. Um, and so what that results in is um, a modern, <laughs> this will probably all change, a modern telling of Shaylu, who is the corn mother. She's kind of equivalent to um, Eve of, you know, the Garden of Eden. Um, but in a, maybe a little bit darker way and, um, and her relationship with her children. And then there's also this story of wild boy who is born out of the blood from the game that his father kills and washes in the river. Um, so <laughs> I know that sounds very weird, but, um, I'm kind of using those two stories uh, and their values to think about um, a commentary on modern, uh, our modern Cherokee community. So there may be, a, there may be a little bit of tribal politics in this one. So <laughs> I might get run off. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like a great concept and it sounds like it will be a great story once you get it all worked out and get everything put together. So, Annette, in our final moments with you today, if anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about uh, even as we breathe or to talk to you a little bit more, learn a little bit more about the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, how can they get in contact with you, first of all, and then where can they get copies of your book? Sure. Uh, I have a website, so it's um, com. Just my first initial, maiden name, last name, .com. And um, you can get copies of the book anywhere that you prefer to buy books. I highly recommend independent bookstores. Um, my home bookstore that has signed copies is City Lights in Silva, and they will mail to you wherever you are. Um, and also Malaprops in Asheville, North Carolina has signed copies. Um, but I, I love so many independent bookstores. I don't want to <laughs> leave any of them out. So find the one nearest you and they will get you the book. Very well said. We have been delighted to be joined today by Annette Clapsaddle as we've been talking to her about her debut novel, 
Even As We Breathe. It's a fantastic story. It's so well written, so well told and weaved together uh, about County and his life, both his uh, ancestral life and the life that he's experiencing uh, as he moves away from his home and goes to Asheville, North Carolina and all the experiences that uh, we encounter there. And so, uh, Annette, congratulations on the book. It's really terrific and fantastic. And uh, as you get that second book uh, finished, we'd love to have you back on the program to talk about it. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. We also want to take a moment to give a special shout out and a thanks to the executive producer of Now Appalachia. Her name is Pam Stack. We appreciate all the work that she does each and every episode here on the program, making sure that the episodes get recorded and uploaded properly and where they should be and at a level that you can enjoy. So thanks, Pam, uh, for all the work that you do. And we also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And that's going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia. But we invite you to come again next time. And in the meantime, please stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next. Stay tuned for more outstanding podcasts from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.